There's no good answer of what needs to happen in school. I no, tell you that. there really isn't. But everybody wants everything. No, I, I, you know, I think that there is, you know, and, and you touched on it a little bit, and I, I think that we've talked about it in the past. Say, you know, there's there's so many things that could be taught that in in a way you would never get out of school. Yeah. Well, and that's that's how I view it. Still, it's like you're always learning. Welcome to the Archispeak Podcast, the podcast for architects by architects, where we discuss all things about architecture. I'm Neil Pan. Each episode, Evan Troxel, Cormac Phelan, and me invite you in on the conversation as we talk about everything in the profession, both the good and the bad. Maybe you're considering a career in architecture, you're still in school, or you've been around the block more times than you'd like to admit. Join us in the studio as we gather around the water cooler and talk about this profession we call architecture. It's time for some Archispeak. Welcome to episode 43 of the Archispeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxel. And I'm Cormac Phelan. And to start us off this week, we've got a couple of friends of the show. First one being uh, Brent Ulbury from Houston, Texas. And we had a little convergence on Twitter between uh, Brent's uh, sport Twitter world and his architecture Twitter world this weekend as uh, the Texas uh, um, team was playing the Houston (laughs) Texans. Houston Texans. Ah, man, I blew it. Sorry. Come on, you should know cuz they beat your team. The, the game was so horrible I've I've forgotten it already. So blocked I mean, it. I have completely blocked it out. Yes, the Houston Texans played my Oakland Raiders and my team didn't show up. So anyway, uh he gave us a donation yeah, exactly. You know, $30.14, which ended up being the score of the game, 30 to 14. So, Who had uh, the 30? It, yeah. <laughs> Do we really have to keep going on this? Yeah. Let's just, yeah. It wasn't my team. Let's put it that way. And if you follow me on Twitter, you'd know that. <laughs> so I, you didn't I have get to, to use that uh, that macro that you said, that keyboard shortcut? I, no. Not it, too much? No, no, no. Because, no. Because by the time the Raiders scored a touchdown, it was irrelevant. <laughs> it wasn't anything to be proud of. Let's put it that way. So uh, so anyway, but thank you very much, Brett. Uh, really appreciate it. And, you know, I think uh, you're going to lose a lot of money if you give us donations based <laughs> upon the scores of Raider games this year. I like so, this. I yeah, so keep donating. We, we appreciate <laughs> it. And our, our second donation uh, this episode is uh, from Terry Moore, and she is from Los Angeles, uh, California. And uh, so we appreciate uh, Terry's donation. Um, and keep listening, guys. And uh, Evan, you usually do this. So what's the, what's the next part? com slash donate. That's right. Where so. uh, you can also become a friend of the show by donating 
$5 or more, and we will read your name on the podcast, and you will get our sincerest thanks. All of the money that is donated goes toward running and producing the show. So uh, all the, the website and, uh, you know, there's tons of stuff that we have to do to actually make a podcast, believe it or not. There's not an easy button uh, like like there is in Revit. So, um, yes. So, so yeah, I get thanks again, everybody, for donating this week. And uh, if, if anybody else wants to donate, go to that website address and do it. Thank what? you. You mean we don't get paid for doing this? <laughs> I've yet to see a paycheck. Yeah, yeah me neither. All right. Damn. All right, so this week, uh, or if I should say for this episode, uh, Cormac wanted to talk about value engineering. He, he's got a couple of good stories he wants to oh, relate and and uh <laughs> I, I think it right? i think it was a uh commiserating yeah it was yeah. A, it was a mutual between evan and i who you know pretty much shared a similar day of value engineering sometimes value so this is where we whatever this is where we insert the you know womp, womp, womp music yeah. or something very sad <laughs> very yes. sad music so all right so cormac what what happened? What always happens? <laughs> what always happens is, uh, <laughs> well, this is a this is an interesting special case because you know there's there's times when most people spend a, a project, you know, especially in in Evan and I can talk pretty you know frankly about all this stuff is when you're doing public schools and stuff, you automatically know that they have a tight to almost non-existent budget sometimes and. You know, you're always looking throughout the design process, the construction documentation to basically streamline the design. It doesn't mean sacrifice the design, but at least streamline the design to, you know, essentially value engineer while you're designing to make sure that you can get something um, that both you're proud of and that, you know, will come in under budget so that they'll actually fund the project. Um I just happen to have one right now that they're constantly changing the budget on us. So it's not one of those um, value engineering by choice. It's a value engineering or the project doesn't exist because first it started off with one number. Then they cut it by 5%, um, which is a big amount. And then, you know, which equated to about five million dollars and then they cut a few more millions of dollars and for anybody who's out there listening who knows that if you're doing a school two million dollars is a lot of money uh five million dollars is a hell of a lot of money and now it's seven million dollars that's like half of a building sometimes or you know, a lot of additions or selective renovations and things like that. And, yeah. Um, Depends where you are in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, for I me, mean, that's, that's two or three buildings on my site. And, and, um, you know, and because of this, it, it's really an interesting project because it's broken up into three funding. They've got three pots of money that the funding's coming from. One was for basically an exterior upgrade. Then the biggest pot of money was for systemics, which is mostly HVAC and um, life safety stuff. Like, you know, because it, it's not a sprinkled building, 
it'll now be a sprinkled building. And so then there's a smaller budget and that's more like selective renovations, um, uh, asbestos abatement, you know, there's, all, you know, all the little things that really aren't going to be seen, but they're going to improve the building. Well, the exterior package already bid. <laughs> the mechanical package, apparently we can't touch. So where does it all come from? Any and all of our educational upgrade, you know, enhancements to the building, any and all of our selected renovations or additions that would improve either circulation or security and safety and all this other stuff. So, you know, here we are having this meeting where, you know, on a typical value engineering, you bring the scalpel and you, you know, do these nice little incisions to cut a little bit here and a little bit there. And here I am pulling out the hatchet. Yeah. I feel like, uh, a lot of times the wrong approach is to do the surgical, the little tiny cuts because you end up taking away things that, that don't add up to enough to make oh, a difference. Yeah. And because you do get, uh, there's a lot, there's a big economy of scale happening on these projects where you're purchasing something and you're almost not even paying for it, you know? So you're, you're cutting a little bit more glazing out, but you got to replace it with a wall anyway, so you're not getting a dollar-for-dollar oh, yeah. dollar oh, yeah, reduction. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, somebody's trying to go around and nip and tuck little pieces of, of glass here and there when, when really in the big picture, like, you have to lose a building. Like you said, you have to pull out the hatchet for to, to actually make it work. Yes, which was, you know, there went my new front entrance, there went this, there went that. You know. <laughs> and then you've got to be the one who said, who who says, this is what we have to do. And you just watch your client's face melt off, oh, right? Yeah. Because yeah. they don't want to cut anything. They don't want to, they've Actually, already thought that they're going to get all that. Yeah. What's worse is then we, through the, you know, the higher ups, not the actual school itself, but you know, the higher ups, but they've made this decision for us to go ahead and remove X amount of dollars from the project. So you go through and you do all of your assessments of, exactly what you're going to be able to eliminate or modify to get to basically equate to that maximum uh, dollar, you know, figure. And then once you're done with all of that, then you get to go back to the school itself, the administrators, the principals and teachers and represent to them. And remember everything that I, uh, we presented before. Yeah, I was just kidding. Here's what you're really getting. And then it's, nothing in comparison and it. And, and that's actually the, the thing that really, I don't know, they get, you know, in, in everybody experiences it. The thing that sucks the worst about the value engineering process when it's not anything that was, you know, like, um, through excessive design or anything like that. It was just, you know, ultimately, um, because other projects in, in here was the case is other projects within the school system came in over budget and to fund those, they robbed, you know, other projects that had funding that was coming later in the year to get those up off the ground. Well, guess what? You know, those, those projects, two of them being ours, 
just so happen to, um, you know, not get any payback. It's just, okay, here's your new budget, make it work. Hmm. You're like, uh, 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 um, yeah. you know, and then of course they, you know, it's, it's always the, well, you know, this is going to cost because now we have to do an additional services for, you know, all of these, you know, change in scope and stuff. And where does that come out of the same budget that you're already cutting? Yeah. So now you're, now you feel horrible because not only do you have to cut all of this project out because the project didn't have the, but you know, the budget to support the program that you were designing, but now you are charging them to, which you have to really, because, you know, if I'm not going to ask my mechanical, you know, my MEP engineers to redesign these entire systems for free when it wasn't, you know, because of them or, you know, anything that they did, it was a owner request. So now you, you say, okay, we'll give you a fee, be, you know, as tight as you possibly can. You beat them down a little bit on the fee, but then when you add all that fee up, that's more that you have to cut out of the building because that, because you still have to take that fee out of your, your, uh, building project as well. It sounds like a pretty vicious cycle. Oh, it is. It's absolutely, you know, it's, uh, um, so, you know, and I, I'm, yeah. I, I am trying to be, you know, pretty vague about it cause I don't really, you know, I don't want any, I don't want to divulge too much information about well, it, but you know, okay. it's, it, but it just seems like a, everybody's had this issue. Well, let, you know. let me ask a question because I have a slightly different take on value engineering, but in your guys's worlds that you work in, um, mainly doing schools and other public buildings is value engineering always like our budget's been cut. And so you cut it. Is it cutting things out of the project? Is that typically what you guys encounter for what you're describing as value engineering? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, it doesn't it's, mean the budget's necessarily been cut, but, uh -huh. but the environment's changed or yeah. in, in the case on my project, the, there's a lot of unforeseen site conditions that all of a sudden uh, yeah. are costing a lot more money than ever expected. Uh huh. And then just looking at, at the, the future bidding environment, um, and the way that the market's picking up and yeah. trying to have yeah. some contingencies in there and all that stuff adds up. And so what does that mean? It means you, you start cutting back now and then you, it, what's crazy is we keep cutting back and the, the budget or the, the price keeps going up. Um, because of all that stuff. So then you just have to keep doing it over and over. And really it's, it's pretty depressing process to go through. I, well, I know that the morale definitely oh yeah, drops absolutely. on the project at that point. And I think one of the reasons that it, it's good to talk about this is because this doesn't happen in school. And for right, all of our student right. listeners who are tuning into this, I mean, this is a reality that we see on practically every project. And this is not something that is ever really talked about on arc daily or architectural record or you know so either the blogs or the magazines this isn't really something that that people talk about because you know number one we don't like to talk about it we don't like it when it happens but the realities of having to cut huge pieces out of your project that you yeah. have spent time on you know months, blood sweat and months. tears on <laughs> creating and making and planning and detailing and, and when it goes away, man, it does hurt. And I think that 
it's kind of one of those things that people don't like to talk about, but it's something that we should be talking about. And oh, yeah, yeah. when our, our clients go through it and they get just as depressed as we do, I mean, so <laughs> it's uh, it, it hurts everybody, but um, a budget is a budget. And I think one of the things that when it comes to design work, for some reason, there's some kind of stigma, I think, with a lot of clients where they don't want to tell you what their budget is. And uh, that just makes it worse, right? Because then you you kind of just run with with design concepts and, and ideas and they love it. And then at the end, they're like, what? It, I, I didn't know it was going to cost that much. And well, how much yeah. did you think it was going to cost? Yeah. Uh, so I think that it can it can definitely lead to problems and fighting and distrust and all kinds of things like that. So there's a lot of meat in the whole value engineering subject that right. comes back to money. Well, then you the, know, then the lawyers get called, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, potentially you know, here, here's the thing is that, you know, there's the market's actually getting a little bit stronger. So, um, where you had at one point in time, any, any and every contractor, and and I remember a couple of projects where contractors would basically uh, bid the project out at almost zero profit to land the project. And, you know, I mean, they're obviously getting paid through, you know, material and labor costs and stuff like that. But they were essentially taking, you know, almost zero profit. Well, those days are gone. Um, and Well, they were trying to make it up in change orders sometimes. And, and yes, they do that, too. And and I, you know, that's, <laughs> that's for a completely different um, podcast where we can get into the whole um, how change orders can kill you. Um, we'll add it to the list. Top. Yeah, but, um, you, you know, so there's so many different ch- things that are actually changing and affect the, the budget itself because a lot of times in the school, um, school budgets and stuff, you know, the board of ed will have the project won't move forward without funding. So they already know what their, their budget is and they built in, you know, soft cost. They do build in some unforeseens a lot of times, um, even on this project that I just finally finished up after five years. Um, you know, there is a lot that we built into it for unforeseens because it was his you know, a couple of historic buildings, it didn't actually amount to the amount that we finally ended up having to pay for unforeseens because, you know, we were, you know, having to pay for archaeologists, which, you know, nobody ever thought of that. Um, we had them come out five different times to do surveys, and stop the project. So you do you get hit with delay claims. They don't really foresee that. Come to find out that the buildings didn't have foundations, didn't really know that. <laughs> so Cormac, let me ask a let me ask a dumb question. You just you said something. You you said we didn't think about that. Not necessarily we didn't know, but I mean there's certain the foundation thing. Okay, you didn't know about that. That's impossible to know or even anticipate, right? Well, but yeah. the archaeologist part, it's like oh, we didn't think about that. Do you get in trouble? You know, or do, or is a firm opening itself up to any sort of liability at that point when? Oh well, why didn't you think of that, Mister Architect? You've done these projects before. Well, because You're supposed we to know everything. Well, because here, well, here's yeah. Well, here's actually you know let me let me address that particular project in general. So we did actually do a you know geotechnical uh, survey of the building. We did test pitting all around the building. 
to determine foundations and all that other stuff as it related to our edition. Right. So anything within the footprint of our edi- our edition, we under- we knew what we were getting into. We even had archaeological surveys of all of those areas. Okay. The problem is, is that when we started to get into it, we did a test pit, you know, say you had in, in this particular case, a 170 uh, linear foot length of wall. And you can't do a test pit the full length of the wall. You just get a snapshot of what you're assuming the foundation of that particular wall is through you know, a few selective uh, test pits. You do the test pit, you come up with your footing depth, and you go from there. Well, this is a fun, these were a fun little condition where the only where only place you picked that exactly we, the wrong place. The only place that we actually had a foundation was at the test pit, five feet to the left and five feet to the right. That was it. The rest of the building, all the way around, was basically a th- a thickened um, masonry wall, solid masonry wall, sitting directly on the soil. Wow! No, I mean the the wall extended twelve inches beyond the finished floor. That was it. I mean, there was no. I mean, so we did pre-plan, you know. X amount of dollars to go to unforeseen conditions. But right. when you're assuming that when you thought you did your due diligence right. and it says, you know, Hey, you have foundations here. And then you go a little bit further because you're going to basically be affecting that entire length of wall and find out that the rest of it didn't, you have to stop re-engineer it. You know, sure, in, in sure. our particular case, we came in and we underpinned the entire length of the the wall. I think it was probably like um, four foot wide of concrete, of you know, cast in place concrete, and uh, somewhere around about uh, eleven feet deep. You know, so that's a lot of concrete, right? I mean, that's that, and that's so a lot. In of work. other words, you kind of did. You did do your due diligence. You we did, did have people come out, but we were and, caught. We were caught off guard yeah. because you know, I mean, you know, you got a hundred and eighteen year old building with absolutely no real documentation. Sure, and it's an occupied school. The schools, right. the school board, let us do very little. They wanted us to do, you know, the preliminary surveys on the cheap. Right. Well, um, of course. You know, and. So that kind of put, you know, forced our hand to say, you know, well, we really need this, 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 and this. And they're like, well, we're not going to pay for this, 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 and this. So right. if you want it, you're going to have to do it for free, which in a, in a lot of cases we did. And the reason we did was because we wanted to have some assurance that what we were designing was going to continue to stand. Right. Um, well, let me give you guys a different, slightly different take on value engineering. Um, most of, uh, most of my career did a lot of production housing, uh, here in California. And when we did value engineering meetings, they were oftentimes more coordination type meetings. And, and that's why I asked the question a little bit earlier about, you know, what is, what is typically what you find in your value engineering? Because 
for our part, when we're doing, you know, production housing, you know, you would get the architect, the structural engineer, hopefully the mechanical contractor, um, and a number of the other, um, you know, vendor, not vendors, but subcontractors that are involved in the project. And everybody had like the preliminary set of plans. Here's, you know, here's what we, how we think it's going to get framed. Here's the architecture and, you know, just pretty much everything. And then all of the like contractors and subcontractors all come into the room and we beat the project up. So in a way that, uh, basically, you know, it's like, well, if you move this window over here, I can eliminate the shear wall or, you know, and, oh, well, I need a soffit here. Well, maybe not a soffit. Let's do this. And so everybody kind of coordinates. So they were more like coordination type meetings. Um, that being said, there would oftentimes, you know, the, the owner or the, the developers in the room as well. And they would sometimes, you know, okay, let's cut that. Ah, oh, what, what do, we don't need those, uh, you know, we don't need that many lights in that room or something like that. And, or, oh, that brick that you have returning around the wall here. Yeah, we don't need that. Just cut it off here. And so that would certainly happen. And that speaks kind of to what we're, you know, the value engineering being a dirty yeah. word. Uh, you know, it's like, this is this, you know, we're going to cut this, save $50 on this house. And that used to frustrate me, especially when I first started doing the, the production housing stuff, is that I was like, wow, you know, come on, it only cost you $50 or $100 to wrap this stone or wrap this brick. I mean, that's probably an exaggeration. It's probably several hundred dollars. But they're like, in the production world, it's like, well, if I can save several hundred dollars and I can do it on every house and I'm building a hundred of them, well, that just paid for my trip to go to Hawaii this year. Yeah. Right. I mean, so it, it became frustrating, but value engineering for me was more coordination and how do we get all of the different parts and pieces, you know, into uh, a house or a group of houses, you know, a number of plans or a number of different elevation styles. It was almost like, we were doing uh, BIM, if you will, uh, with all of the parts and pieces, but we're all sitting around the table talking about it instead of modeling it because we yeah. didn't we didn't do that 15 years ago or 10 years ago. I think that the the biggest disservice that value engineering does, or you know, this process that we're talking about, um, is that the client has an expectation. Um, as far as what, what they're getting. And there's somebody who's trying to reduce whatever that is, and, you know, in order to save money, which is a legitimate reason why to do it. Um, but typically what I've seen is the person who's really trying to do that does not care about the end product according to the users who are going to be using it. So in our case, it's kids. Right. It's what I've said before is our clients are our clients' clients. They're, it's not, yes, we are building this school in this particular school district with certain administrators and people in charge, but they are not the end users. The end users are the teachers and the kids, and, and really it's the kids. Right. And so what we're trying to do is create the best learning environment possible. And I can tell you right now, the people who are make, trying to make the decisions about what to cut and why something does not deserve to exist in the project, don't give a crap about those kids or about that learning environment, I should say. Right. Or have they that's ever the most in. frustrating part. 
Yeah. Or have they ever stepped into a classroom to really see what that environment should be? And I know that they've stepped into lots of classrooms, but and maybe they just don't recognize the impact that a good learning environment can have versus a typical right. learning environment. Because, right. yeah, whatever right. they want to build, I'm sure is good enough for somebody. Hmm. But that's not why I do architecture. The reason I do architecture is because I want to affect somebody's life. And if that's going to be a kid, so be it. I want it to be the best learning environment that I can with the money that they're willing to give us to make it happen. And so I'm fighting the other direction. I'm like, we, I'm going to find another way to get tackable surface into this project. I'm going to go, I'm going to spend more time researching and digging and finding somebody who's going to be able to give me a product at half the cost of the thing that I had in there, but they still get it so that they can still achieve what they want in that space. I'm glad you actually said that because that's actually, to me, now we're, we're talking, you know, my example came in as this, you know, when I started explaining the my current project, it was more about, you know, how eliminating budget is affecting the design where we're basically having to come in with a hatchet and chop off a bunch of stuff. And, you know, that's the, that's the kind of like horror story of value engineering. But what you just said, and I, I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but, and I, w- I want to make this point pretty clear, good value engineering. Cause there is a big, there is good value engineering and the, value engineering that makes us all cringe and, you know, uh, go into the corner and cry like a baby in a fetal position because we've just killed our, you know, killed our building. Um, That's an interesting visual. It's Cormac crying the, in the corner. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I don't cry. I have no emotion. Because <laughs> you're a Marine. Uh, excuse me. Army. Thank you. Army. Soldier. Sorry. Soldier. Jeez, Evan, you cut that part. Could out. not have said anything worse. Worse, I, I know. <laughs> I mean, you could you could have said to cut my budget another fifty million dollars, and I, I wouldn't have better. reacted like being called a damn marine. Hey, careful there. To any marine listeners, you know, I mean, you, you got to email Cormac. Email yeah. Cormac. His his I mean, email address will be listed. Even in marines show notes. need heroes. <laughs> And that's why the army's around. Oh. <laughs> uh, come on. I'm, okay, kidding. I'm kidding, of course. Anyway, but back to the good value engineering. Good value engineering is exactly what Evan was saying. And that's where throughout the process of the design and even, you know, into, you know, construction, if, or I mean, not construction, but, you know, construction documents, if you see something that, you know, um, is giving you kind of a, a pain in detailing, you know, if it's going to give you a pain in detailing and there is a easier way to do it, that's usually going to end up being a cheaper way. Cause you know, um, as I'm finding out on a project that's under construction, you know, I, I, I had this one area that, you know, two different new sections of a building are coming together with three different sections of an old building in kind of like this little perfect storm of just problems with multiple layers of steel beams and, you know, different heights and things like that. So 
with all of that stuff coming together, I was just really petrified of how it was going to work out because the way that I was detailing it felt right, but wasn't quite sure. And thankfully with very open dialogue between me, the construction manager and the steel contractor, we got it all worked out before they even, you know, cut the first, um, uh, beam to bring out there, you know? So, but it's also also sounds like a BIM. Yeah. Yeah. You guys were all getting this and you're right. This is what value engineering should be about, which is experience that leads to a, a, a more efficient, a quicker, a cheaper way to do the right. exact same right. outcome, but it's or you know, close it's, to it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, you know, it's either adding or changing, you know, elements within the, within your design to, achieve the performance achieve the quality of design yeah. achieve the you intent know, yeah achieve the intent at a more cost effective easier construction method um to make everything go smoother and easier and that that's what good value engineering is and i think i got a little sidetracked because of uh neil's um you know derogatory comment towards the u.s army um, but, uh, but I think, but, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's that it's working through the design process and thinking about all of the, you know, the right decisions. It's that, it's that best practices that we always talk about. Um, you know, that's good value engineering throughout the whole process. Um, and so there is that good and evil value engineering. And I think Neil, in a way, you were kind of you were almost talking about the convergence between the good and bad, where you know it wasn't necessarily you were doing things to make it just a little bit cheaper on delivery, but it was you know it wasn't things that were detrimental to the design, or maybe it was. Well, it uh, it sometimes was and sometimes wasn't. Um, but going back to what Evan was saying earlier. The people in that room making all of the decisions rarely, if ever, had um, the end user uh, in mind here. You know, the, the end user in this case was the, the family or, or whomever was buying our, these, these homes. And it's, and it's unknown, right? I mean. Well, in this case, yes, it's yeah. completely unknown. So you really can't know them. But me as the architect would always be in there thinking i want to try and create you know a, 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 a beautiful and pleasing streetscape so i want these houses to look a certain way and um and you know or just the inside spaces to work a certain way so that it's an efficient and a good home right and and the other people were you know on the engineer he doesn't care about you know window placement or anything he's just like uh, whatever is the best uh, that I can save a, a hold down here or a sheer wall there or a strong wall over here, that's all they care about. And then the, the client or the developer in this case is, oh, I can save two sheer walls or two strong walls if I eliminate this. Okay, yeah, do that. that that's just saved me $1,000 per house times 100 houses. And so that's the way they look at it and nobody really cares about. It. And so I, I often found that I was in... I was the only one that really cared about who was the end user, what is it going to look like. I mean, the builder 
does care because they want it to sell. So their mentality in this particular case is, does that affect the sellability of the house? No, then I'm going to save some money. And it's hard to argue that, right? It's like, please spend money for something that nobody is going to see or feel warm and fuzzy about other than me. And or other architects that may experience these homes or just the homeowners, they won't care if, you know, one thing is this way or it's that way because they'll never know. Well, but see, I'll know. <laughs> well, see, you just kind of ex- explained the catch-22 that architects exist in. And that's, you know, and, and we've talked about this in the past about, you know, what value, you know, architects bring to projects and things like that. And in this particular case, you know, we're talking about value engineering and kind of tying it all together. You know, Evan and Neil, you were just both talking about, you know, the how the building feels to the end user and, and, you know, kind of both the aesthetics and also the environment and everything else. So we in this world we have to live in, we care about all of that. But we also have to care about the budget. We also have to care about, you know. Um, the cost effectiveness of things and, you know, the type of materials and the maintenance and just all of these different things and never, and maybe I'm wrong or, you know, but never can we ever truly reconcile all of the different cares and concerns that we always have on these projects because something's going to give, you know? Yeah. I, and I think also just the longer it drags out, the more, (laughs) People just want to be done with it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, or, or somebody new comes onto the project that doesn't have those attachments, or, or somebody leaves the projects that that mm. had those attachments, and now 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 someone doesn't have to deal with them. I, I laugh I'm, only. I'm curious, guys. It, when you guys were in school, and I I can't recall personally myself, but I mean, did we ever have to deal with, you know, budgets is t- are tough because. You know, until something gets bid or something, it's really hard to know the cost. So maybe this is kind of unrealistic to ask to be done in in a school environment. But, um, I mean, did you guys ever have to deal with, the, you know, kind of the a budget question no. at all no. in any design projects you guys worked on in school? No, everything, everything was designed and, you know, theorized in a bubble outside right. of the realm of buildability and budget. Yeah, I would um, say the answer to my to that for me is never, <laughs> never well, I, once. I, you know, and, and I, I th- well, I, I was just going to say I'm curious for those student listeners that that are out there. I mean, do you think? You know, I'm, I'm asking our our listeners to kind of give us some feedback on this. Do do you guys think that having some of that as an experience in in the classroom would be helpful, or do you, or is is school the time to, like you just said, be in the bubble? We don't really care about the budget. We don't really care about can you build it. Let's just design. Let's express ourselves. Is that the environment? Is school the best time to just do that? Because yeah. you're, we're all going to spend the rest of our life in this prison of architecture afterwards, right? <laughs> Thanks, Bridge. Wow, that's ouch. No, here's, 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 the, here's how I believe this, that we're we want to teach you know the design and you know 
kind of having them, um, you know, the design, the theory and everything else in early on when you're kind of letting people explore you're, you know, you've got them taking the one-on-one classes where they're learning, you know, drafting or, you know, whatever kind of tectonic thing, whatever kind of tectonic thing that they're learning, you know, that's a good time for them just to kind of have a little bit of freedom of design and, you know, theory and just kind of exploring. But because these, you know, schools are typically five, six years, you know, span, you need to start reining it in because, you know, we, we've all talked about this in past episodes, but the biggest complaint really is, is when they, when we all came out of school, we really had no, the value that we brought was potential to be something later on down the road and not be able to really hit the ground running with practical skills that would, you know, be a billable hour kind of thing. Yeah, but I think that's what the mentoring process, once you're out in the field, is all about. It's about new, fresh ideas merged with uh, experience and know-how, you know? But did you... But because no one expects you to come out of school and just start running projects when you go work for a firm. You just don't start running well, projects. Well, but no, but, and we, you know, we've talked about, when, you know, and let's, let's put this again back in the comparison of, you know, us to doctors and lawyers. They are expected to be able to come out of school and be able to save lives or practice law. Because they've actually put those constraints, and we've talked about that in the past too. You know, architecture is being able to manage a set of constraints, a set of, you know, rules and things like that. And never in school, I mean, we're given design problems and we explore those and we basically stretch out, you know, all of our different solutions to, you know, every possible different variation you know a variable of the solution and and that's great and we should continue to do that but there's got to be this layer of adding constraints to really kind of push them because when you have a basically other than just okay here's your site put you know whatever you want you know here's your design problem go ahead and do it you know, then you, you know, if you start adding those layers of constraints on there, you know, this is the type of material that you need to use, or here's your budget, you find the material that's going to fit that budget on this site, then it starts to, then they start to take that, um, you know, all of this, their earlier explorations and start to kind of focus it on real practical, useful knowledge that they're going to be using for the rest of their career. Well, what about, let me ask this then, would it be, would there be a value in say, you know, a part of a studio class or perhaps, you know, one studio class during the year or or something like that, where they're given the task, you know, students are given the task of, okay, we're going to design some, we'll keep it, you know, somewhat simple, you don't have to spend the whole quarter or semester designing, but part of your design process is to have, as you said, constraints, Corvick, of maybe here's a budget. And so now 
as Evan, you were saying earlier, you know, if you want a particular material or uh, construction detail that in your project, um, then you've got to find a way to, you know, find a way to cut somewhere else or value engineer somewhere else so that you can do that. And just, so it's really teaching design. It's teaching the real world uh, realities of how do I how do I find products online? Because I think that was a real deficiency, and at least in my education was, um, you know, how do you go find these things? How there do you wasn't learn online. About that? There were there were well, sweets catalogs. Yeah, I was I'm say, sorry, there was sweets. Come on, it was sweets. I understand that, but you know, we're talking 2014 now. So you know, you search online, you find these products, which um, and and you go through the process. So I mean. And that's kind of bleeding over into, you know, what should be taught in school or how it should be taught. But I guess I'm kind of going above that and just saying, should something like that be taught in school so that we experience, you know, these uh, these things and we learn to not only design in school, but also design for cost effectiveness and, uh, you know, so that you can achieve this intent that you, you spoke of earlier for a more cost effective solution. Here to me, real quick, um, design build studios are a great way to introduce that, you know, that layer of constraint without really um, stifling their creativity because essentially their, you know, um, rural studio is a great example. Um, I get to tout my uh, school for yeah. a little while. But Rural Studio is a great um, experience for everybody who goes out and does this because they have real clients. They have real budgets. They spend a lot of time basically saying, okay, how can we stretch that budget? Well, a lot of how we can stretch that budget is we're going to be doing a lot of the, we'll be doing all of the design. We'll be doing almost all of the labor. Um, most of that cost will be going towards materials. So what can we do to stretch those materials um, under, you know, basically free labor to get the most dynamic um, design that we possibly can? And so I think with the constraints, it's that it never actually throws up roadblocks. I think it actually adds a layer of creativity to it. Yeah. And... Yeah. Well, that's what design is, right? It's problem solving through yeah, constraints. Right. And so, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, hey, let's have a studio project, you know, process where we sit down and on a very static project, we give them, um, you know, the site, we give them this, we give them that, you know, we, we throw in the a budget, um, you throw in the construction timeline, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. And this is how you have to deal with it. And you're just dealing with a bubble of a studio environment. Getting out, swinging a hammer, you know, looking, you know, talking to a client, um, you know, trying to scrounge up, you know, extra um, material because you think that, you know, hey, we're going to do a rammed earth wall, but to let in some light why don't we go and get some recycled um, soda bottles, um, you know, glass soda bottles that, you know, are green and blue and this and that and the other. And so now you add a layer of, di you know, 
dynamic design to it that otherwise you wouldn't have really got on a typical constrained project that you would have done in studio. And so you go and you look at the, you know, a lot of the projects in the rural studio. I mean, these things are built for like $5,000. Um, you know, they had, uh, challenges to do the $20,000 home, which was like a, an actual livable home, you know, with, I, I, you know, like maybe three bedroom bath, you know, stuff like that, you know, trying to get the design down or the cost of the construction down, but it never diminished the ability to stretch the design or make it more dynamic or make it something that's, you know, above and beyond like the norm. Yeah. I, I, th I have an observation about, about architectural studio, at least from my experience, um, which is in, you know, I know we started out with value engineering and now we've kind of merged over into education, but I, I feel like when students graduate and they go work for a firm, um, they have been operating under a severe disadvantage while in school. Whereas professors, again, this is my experience who are teaching design studio, um, number one, don't put you in a hourly work environment. Mm. So you, 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 and I, I could go either way right now with this, but honestly, you know, projects, as far as design go, it, it takes what it takes to do, to accomplish. Right. 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 But at the same time, we're built, we build by the hour. So there's a, a big conundrum there. Um, but in studio, that's never, that never comes up. You do what it takes to get the project done. Right. And so either you're really good at managing your own time or you're not, and you spend way more time doing it. Either way, you're going to get that thing finished. And the professor is never checking on that. They, they just know that they're going to get a product in the end. And right. again, I, and I, and I think that that also is a disservice to most of the architecture that we do, because most of what we do is not a product. It is a process. Right. And constraints come from process and budget and clients and needs and all of these things, which do not exist in product based architecture. Right. There may be a few constraints, but they are not all of the ones I just mentioned for the most part. You know, you have a client and you have a program and you have a site and and those are your main constraints. But there are so many more constraints in, in the real world of architecture. Right. Um, and so my advice is to know, number one, that you're not going to get that education in school. Know what you're not getting. Um, unless you go to a place like Rural Studio, and I'm sure there's others. Um, but my advice is go get a job while you're in school doing that stuff. Work construction or work in a firm or find somebody in your family who wants to build something and build it. Design it and build it over the summers. And that will give you the experience that we're talking about. Working with budgets, working with a city, doing the permitting process, doing the drawings swinging a hammer, all those things, man, working with the client, th that is the real experience of what it actually takes to get something built. And as our friend Bob says, and I totally agree, it doesn't count if it doesn't get built. If that's, if you're going into architecture to do paper architecture, you're talking about the product and you're not working with the constraints that we're talking about. So you've probably already turned this podcast off, but, um, I mean, that's my advice to students out there and, and know what you're not getting. 
and then make that happen while you're in school on your own. Well, you know, you say that we've deviated from our discussion about value engineering, but I don't necessarily agree because everything that you just talked about, all of that comes back as probably the biggest aid to value engineering or understanding how to do the good value engineering throughout the process because what you're doing is, you know, you've got a good working base of this practical experience where in as you, you know, get more seasoned and you, you know, get more experience, let's throw the seasoned word out. When you, when you gain more experience through, you know, projects and you're going out and you're looking at construction administration and you can see what, um, you know, how things are being built and stuff like that. You start to build this, your own personal knowledge base of what works, what doesn't work so that you can, um, you know, get it, you know, be able to work through all of this stuff and get it right. Mm, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, everything that you were talking about, Evan, and everything that I was talking about, Neil, we're talking about on it, all these different, you know, things that you experience could really help shape the process, make it a better value engineering process because you're doing smart design throughout the entire process rather than I totally wait until the very that. end. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, I just to throw this in there, I mean, when you're doing design work, I mean, you have to be thinking system-wise. You yeah. have to be thinking about structure at the same time and mechanical at the same time and lighting at the same time and architecture at the same time. Because if you're not, man, you that when you get to that point where you got to start cutting things out or trying to fit things in that just don't work because of you didn't think of all that stuff, you're going to be screwed. It's going to be even more painful and you are going to have to redesign it. Yeah. That's so the smarter engineering comes in, <laughs> the smarter that you are going through the process, the less pain you will have to go through when it actually comes time to start cutting things out. Yep. Absolutely. Well, guys, I would like to encourage our listeners to either through Twitter or on our Facebook page or, and call in to the Arcuspeak podcast hotline at 415-484-8496 and share with us your most either successful value engineering or give us that horror story we'll <laughs> well it's a it's really I'm good sure every, to share it on the show i'm sure everybody uh out there listening has got one to share all right so that's our challenge everybody let us know what uh what you think about value engineering and uh and thanks for listening yeah, thanks guys. I that was a, a a good topic and I you know, I I know we touched on a bunch of stuff, but I felt like it was a really good conversation. So, thanks. Thank you guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Good night.
Oh, you